Hey everybody, it's Jonathan Capehart. Welcome to Cape Up. Former Labor Secretary Tom Perez is now running to be the leader of the Democratic Party, a party he says needs a culture change that would allow Democrats to connect with people again. Does he make a convincing case? Listen for yourself right now. Secretary Perez, thanks for being here. Jonathan, it's great to be with you and your listeners. So do you miss being secretary, being in the administration, working all those long hours, doing all the stuff you were doing? Well, I really miss Barack Obama, and I think the nation misses Barack Obama. It's not just what he accomplished, but how he accomplished it. The grace that he demonstrated every day. His North Star was always uh, people who wanted to get in the middle class. And the reason I loved my job at the Labor Department is we help people at scale, whether it was 2 million home health workers, mostly women of color on food stamps, get access to minimum wage or overtime, whether it was the construction worker who was breathing uh, silica dust, which can kill you, and we were able to help make sure that that didn't happen. That's what it's all about. That's why I got into public service, to make sure that people have access to opportunity. Well, that's why you got into public service, and you, because of the election, you're out of public service, but just for the moment, because you're running to be the next chair of the Democratic National Committee. That's a thankless job. As we as we have seen, why on earth would you want to lead a party that has become quite adept at just devouring its own? Oh, I think it's a tremendous opportunity. I think the Democratic Party is in need of uh, transformation. There's no doubt about that, Jonathan. Uh, But you know what? I've been visiting people all across this country. I was on a tour of rural America last week and I was in northwestern Wisconsin. I was in Kansas And everywhere I go, I see Democrats who are excited. They have a lot of suggestions. They have a lot of critical advice. Uh, you got to make house calls, for instance. I mean, we lost this election at the presidential level for a number of reasons, including but not limited to the fact that we weren't touching people. You have to have 12 months a year organizing, and you have to have a presence in every zip code. And and we ignored that. And again, Wisconsin's a great example. Uh, Mitt Romney got more votes in 2012 than Donald Trump got in 2016. But we lost Wisconsin because we didn't talk to the people in Milwaukee. And 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 Milwaukee is a Democratic rich voter base. But you don't show up at a church every four years and call that organizing. And then we ignored entire swaths of rural Wisconsin and we got our butts kicked. And I was up in Hayward, which is in the northwest corner. I flew into Duluth, drove about an hour, hour and a half. And, And what I heard up there was not only have you forgotten us, but uh, you've disrespected us. And so I'm running because there's tremendous opportunity, Jonathan, notwithstanding the results. So I'm excited about this. Well, clearly you are. I mean, you just rattled off a whole list of things that uh, I'm going to try to get sure. to in the time that we have. But the key thing you said that jumped out at me was in your driving from Duluth into northern Wisconsin, that the message you were you were getting from people is that they felt that uh, you've forgotten us and you're, you've disrespected us. Uh, how were how are they articulating being forgotten, and what did that disrespect look like? Well, I had, there was one person up there whose uh, observations really stuck with me. He said, I feel politically homeless. As a result of, of what's happened in recent years where we've simply not invested any resources, we haven't had boots on the ground, uh, we haven't been speaking to the economic fears that people face. And, and it's not simply that we've ignored them, but 
I think there's a sense in, in parts of rural America that the Democratic Party looks down on them. And that couldn't be further from the truth. But when people feel that way, it's incumbent on us as Democrats to make those House calls, to be a, a, a presence there, and to be helping them on the issues that matter most to them. I think we, we succeed when we are working in partnership with communities across this country to address the issues of economic security and middle-class anxiety that, that uh, they feel. And, and they feel like we just haven't been there for them. Uh, so the party on, well, the vision or the view is that the Democratic Party is the party of the coasts. And then everything in between is has been completely forgotten. And what you're talking about sounds like that that fits right into that narrative. One thing that came out of this election that is actually kind of driving me crazy, and that is the phrase, oh, my God, the forgotten white working class, that if only the Democratic Party would focus on the white working class, everything would be all right. Do you do you believe that? Is it that simple? Well, I think we have to avoid false choices. You either help the white working class or you uh, work with uh, emerging communities and growing communities. And and we can do both. We are uh, a remarkable party. Our big tent is our greatest strength. And as as Dr. King once said, the best civil right is a job. And that message resonates in every zip code in America. And uh, we we lost uh, white working class voters in part because our message of economic prosperity didn't resonate with them. And we lost young people who either didn't vote or voted for a third party candidate because they felt that our message wasn't resonating with them either. And so the the message of good jobs, middle class security and inclusion and opportunity for everyone, that has always been who we are as a Democratic Party. And that message has resonated across racial categories, across zip codes in rural and urban and suburban America. And I think that message is a powerful message. I don't think we lost, Jonathan, because of our values in this last election. I think our values of inclusion, our values of opportunity for everyone, those are values that I think resonate everywhere. You know, listening to you speak and and, having watched the campaign and followed the campaign The people who said that Hillary Clinton didn't have a message, that um, she couldn't break through, is it that she didn't have a message or is it that she couldn't break through because the Republican presidential candidate was doing things and saying things and proposing things that were so outlandish and outrageous and running a campaign that was so beyond the pale that there was nothing she could do, nothing she could say that would break through? Well, it's always important to remember that Hillary Clinton won the popular vote, and I was going to so, get and I was going to so get to that let's, next. Let's, my next let's question. always remember that, and and she won the popular vote solidly, you know, by I think almost, almost three million, million votes. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's point number one. Point number two, though, and then, and I've gone into a number of states to do a deep dive, and let me just give you one example, and that's the state of Ohio. Ohio is an example of what happens when you don't have an every zip code strategy. In 2012, Barack Obama won 40 percent or more of the vote in 46 out of the roughly 100 counties in Ohio. And in 2016, Hillary Clinton won 40 percent or more of the vote in 16 out of the 100 counties. Mm -hmm. She she held her own in the three population centers, which are the Cleveland area, the Columbus area, the Cincinnati area, and got clobbered (laughs) elsewhere. And of the 20 counties in the United States where you saw the biggest swing from Barack Obama in 2012 to Donald Trump 
in 2016. Six of those counties were in Ohio. Hmm. And what we learned about that was the mess, the economic message didn't resonate. What they heard from Donald Trump was, I'm going to bring your coal jobs back. You and I, I think, Jonathan, both know that's a lie. But what voters heard was, he's feeling my pain. He's feeling my anxiety. And what they heard all too frequently from the Clinton campaign was, vote for me because he's crazy. I will stipulate to the accuracy of that statement. But that's not an affirmative message. And when you don't have a physical presence, an organizing presence, when you haven't made house calls in these communities and you're not affirmatively putting forth our optimistic message of inclusion, when hope is on the ballot, we win. And when we allow others to put fear on the ballot, which is what happened in this election, we don't do so hot. So to my mind, the next party chair must have three traits. person must be able to raise a lot of money. The person has to have shown an ability to win races. And the person must do the job full time. Are those criteria fair? And what's missing from that list? And where do you fall? Sure. Well, I mean, I I think those criterion are are good criterion, but they're not the complete criterion. You know, I've been a fighter my whole career, uh, and I've been fighting for the values that are at the heart and soul of the Democratic Party, whether it's taking on police reform, taking on Wall Street, taking on uh, marriage equality, uh, making sure that people who work a full-time job don't have to live in poverty. Uh, We need to make sure that the leader of the party is that person who is going to fight for our democratic values and knows how to win those fights. I worked for Ted Kennedy. Ted Kennedy knew how to win those fights. Barack Obama knew how to win those fights. You know, in my own uh, campaign now, uh, we've raised almost a million dollars over less than eight weeks. And we did it also um, establishing rules for myself that uh, we would not accept money from lobbyists. We did not accept money from corporations. And I'm proud of the fact that we have donate donations from, ranging from a dollar to uh, the maximum allowed uh, under this uh, under the rules of the of the uh, DNC, and so uh, we've done a good job in attracting people across the board. I think the area where it's also really important to understand the importance of the next leader is we need a turnaround specialist because the Democratic Party needs to transform itself. It needs dramatic culture change. It's a complex organization. And it needs someone with a track record of transforming a complex organization and changing culture. And culture change isn't easy. And I, when I got into the Civil Rights Division in 2009, it had been decimated by the Bush administration. My predecessor was recommended for criminal prosecution, and, and we were able to turn it around. I've learned a few leadership lessons, Jonathan, in the course of these jobs. And, mm-hmm. and the most important leadership lesson is that leadership, uh, good leaders are good listeners, and, and I could give you half a dozen examples of things we did at the Labor Department to make sure that we could help people at scale. And what virtually all of them have in common, Jonathan, is they were someone else's idea. I was able to build a culture in which people felt part of something bigger than themselves. And we built partnerships outside the Labor Department with our partners in the progressive movement, with our partners in the business community, with our partners across government. In order for the Democratic Party to succeed, We have to change our culture as well in the sense that we have to work with our progressive partners. I think a turnaround specialist at scale is um, a really important part of this job. And that's what I've done. So turnaround specialist. So is it possible for um, to have a Democratic Party that plays as well in New York and California 
as it does in, say, Colorado and Missouri. Because, again, as I said at the outset, the Democratic Party is really good at eating its own and demanding uniformity no matter where you are. And those Democratic parties in those four states I mentioned are completely different. How are you going to pull all these people with disparate views and disparate agendas, center-left and far-left, to do all the things that you want to do from this all-zip-code strategy um, which is even more technical than, say, the 50-state strategy of, of Howard Dean. How sure. do you do that? Well, I think sometimes we get caught up as a party in immediately wanting to place a label on someone. Are you a uh, left-wing Democrat? Are you a progressive Democrat? Are you a centrist Democrat? Are you a conservative Democrat? I think in order for us to uh, succeed as a party everywhere, the most important question we need to be asking everywhere is are we lifting people up or are we bringing them down? When we work with that steel worker outside of Youngstown who lost her job and we retool and now she's working in advanced manufacturing, we're lifting her up. When we work with the Seattle Police Department or the Albuquerque Police Department or Ferguson to help make sure that we have effective constitutional policing, we're lifting everyone up. And when we're working to lift wages and make sure that you have access to retirement security and calling out Donald Trump for the fact that one of the first things he did was to make it harder for first-time homeowners to buy a home. And then one of the most recent things he did was to make it harder for people who are retiring to get advice that they need to retire with dignity. When we call out that the charlatan uh, that he is. And when we're talking about the economic security of the Democratic Party, the party that brought us Social Security, the party that brought us Medicare, and we're contrasting that with the Republican Party, which is the party that's trying to privatize Social Security, the party that's trying to voucherize Medicare and eliminate the Affordable Care Act. When we do that, I think that contrast really shows people who's trying to lift them up and who's trying to bring them down. So in that, it makes me wonder... Do you view the role of the Democratic Party chair as a bully pulpit? Would you spend as much time hammering away at Republicans and the president as you would changing the culture and rebuilding the party so that it can compete in all the counties, in all the states and territories? Well, the goal of the the chair of the Democratic National Committee is to make sure that we are electing Democrats up and down the ballot in communities across this country, from the school board to the city council, to the state legislatures, to the U.S. Senate, to secretaries of state, to the president of the United States. And we do that by making sure we have a coherent message that is consistent with our values. When, when we are leading with our values and our values of economic security, as opposed to simply vote for me because he's crazy, when we are talking about our values every single day, uh, when, when these protests that I've been to at airports, you know, I, I'm guessing, Jonathan, and this is unscientific, but a lot of those folks at those airports are not registered Democrats. But when I see folks and when they see the Democratic Party side by side with them in solidarity on issues they care about, whether it's climate whether it's women's reproductive health, the attacks on Planned Parenthood, the attacks on the labor movement, when people see the Democratic Party side by side, that's called putting our values into action. And when people see those actions 
and people see us fighting for them. That's how we get voters to come Democratic. And when we are both organizing and optimistic, organizing everywhere with that message of optimism and inclusion, then we put hope on the ballot again. So, yes, lead with our values. And I keep coming back to the fact that Hillary Clinton won the popular vote by three million votes. Is the job of the next party chair really going to be all that hard since the previous presidential nominee did win the popular vote by almost three million votes? Are Dem- Would Democrats be making a mistake if they think that they actually don't have their finger on the pulse of the country because of that popular vote? I I do think the job of the next DNC chair is going to be challenging. And uh, I I think there's nobody, whoever gets elected, and and every one of the candidates are people that I have great respect for and in many cases have worked with with great frequency and with success. The challenge is it's not just that uh, we won the popular vote but didn't win the presidency, but we've lost over 900 seats in state legislatures. I'm frequently asked, you know, what do we got to do to take back the House of Representatives for Democrats? Well, we've got to take back state houses and state senates for Democrats. And we've done a lousy job of that over the last 10 years. And, and what we have to do is build strong parties from the bottom up. The, the DNC needs to provide better service. We need to be helping to train candidates. We need to have a center for best practices. We need to be making sure that we are the epicenter or an epicenter for organizers so that we're helping to organize everywhere. And and Jonathan, we need to address one of the biggest threats to our democracy, which is voter suppression. That is a staple of the Democratic, of the Republican Party. And, And we have to do that at scale, because they're doing it everywhere, which is why I've called for the creation within the DNC of a voter protection and empowerment unit. And both those words matter because we got to play defense against the voter ID laws and the voter purging that's taking place in so many states, as well as voter purges against Democrats living abroad. And we've also got to play offense. You know, we should be talking about things like Vote by mail, which is what was done in Oregon. We should be expanding early voting. We should be talking about universal voter registration. We should be talking about long-term reforms to the electoral system. And and that's why I've been calling for this, because these attacks on, on the right to vote have been unconscionable. But in many cases, they've been successful. So they're going to keep doing it. So you you mentioned that um, the way to get you got to focus on the state houses and the state legislatures. You got to get better candidates. How do you find better candidates? What makes a better candidate? Where do you where do you find them? How do you recruit them? Well, again, and why would and why would anybody want to get into this profession, the profession of politics, given what we've seen uh, over the last Oh, 12, 16, 20 years. Well, I'll tell you why I've gotten in, because you help people at scale. Public service and politics is, is about the people business. You know, and when I meet Ward, the long haul truck driver from Nashville who uh, had hepatitis, couldn't work anymore, needed health care. March 1st of 2015, he gets covered under the ACA. March 15th, he has a liver transplant. Now he's healthy, and I ask him, hey, Ward, what do you want to do now that you're getting your health back? And he says, I want to work. I want to be a taxpayer. When I meet Ellie Perez, um, no relation. No, I was going to say any relation. No relation. Uh, And what Ellie has in common with my kids is that she's every bit as smart or smarter than my kids. And the uh, one thing that's different about Ellie 
is that she was born in Mexico and, and uh, was brought here when she was young, and she's a dreamer. And uh, I was hoping beyond hope that 2017 was going to be her year. And I fought like heck during this campaign for the Ellies of the world, for the wards of the world, people who want economic opportunity, people who just simply want to be able to dream, the American dream. Can the demonstrations that we have seen since President Trump was inaugurated, can... When I I hear that word, President Trump, I'm sorry, my my tick comes back. (laughs) Well, uh, he is the the president of the United States, but he's a president of the United States with the lowest approval, approval rating of any incoming president who has had his administration demonstrated against every weekend um, that it has been in office, in power. Can that be sustained? And how do you harness that? Sure. I I think we can turn this moment into a movement. You know, January 20th was certainly a notable day in American history. But January 21st and beyond was actually more notable in my mind, because that's when you saw millions of Americans, not only in D.C. and New York and Los Angeles, but in Hayward, Wisconsin, where I was on my rural tour, in Kansas, across America, people saying, Donald Trump, you do not stand for our values. And you see all of these uh, movements that are uh, coming up. And I, I think the key for the Democratic Party is to turn that moment into a movement. Somebody asked me recently, Jonathan, what do you think you'll do if you have the privilege of getting elected Uh, when you get to the office on day one. And my answer was, I'm not sure I'll be in the office on day one because I might be out um, somewhere across America on behalf of people who are in danger of losing their health insurance or or refugees who are being mistreated or immigrants who are being the subject of these raids that are coming back uh, from ICE. And we don't need to lead these movements, but we need to be a conspicuous partner I believe that one of the most important things that the head of the Democratic Party can do to sustain this momentum is to make sure we are out there with people everywhere, showing them that our values and your values are the same. Former Labor Secretary Tom Perez, thank you very much, and candidate for chair of the Democratic National Committee. Jonathan, pleasure to be with you as always. Next week, we're going to talk to the other top contender for DNC chair, Congressman Keith Ellison of Minnesota. Subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher to listen to the podcast. And don't forget to leave us very nice reviews. For more, you can follow me on Twitter at KmartJ. 